Our study is back in the book of Acts, and we're now in chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, where we're seeing the first signs of opposition against the disciples themselves, following what happened in chapter 3, which was the healing of the lame beggar and Peter's second sermon. And and now we look uh, at the first part of chapter 4 this week, and we'll come back to it again next week. So if you want to do that, read ahead and study ahead and ask the Lord to reveal some insights to you as you do that so you'll be prepared for next week. But uh, this passage, chapter 4, signals a shift uh, in the early church in its ministry. Because in chapter 4, they faced their first real resistance. And then in chapter 5, they faced their first internal conflict and the first clear evidence of sin within the body. And in chapter 6 and 7, they face their first persecution and death when Stephen is martyred. Then Paul, Saul ramps up the persecution in chapter 8, but at the same time the persecution is increasing, evangelism is now starting to go out, and Philip goes into the desert, and he meets the Ethiopian man, and the gospel goes into Samaria, and it starts to spread. And that increases when Paul gets saved on the road to Damascus in chapter 9. And now the gospel is going to the Gentiles. We move from Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So so we see it's starting to change. And in chapter 10, that's confirmed when Peter is at Cornelius' house and he has the great dream of the sheet, which we'll study down the road. And, And God is saying the gospel is now to the Gentiles. So chapter 4, this chapter that we're looking at, is a very pivotal point in the book of Acts. As the church increases and the apostles become more visible and the gospel starts to spread, which means that what happens here is very instrumental in terms of what's going to happen ahead. Because if the apostles at this point back down, at the first sign of trouble, at the first sign of opposition, if they back down, it will set a precedent for future ministry. But if they fulfill their calling and stand for the Lord, the Spirit is going to move in very powerful ways. Now, how many of us know that's true for you and I this week? That if we back down and we shy away and and we're hesitant, that it will affect our, our, our ministry down the road. But if we stand firm and we fulfill the calling that God has given us as individuals and as a church, the Spirit of God is going to move again and again and again. So the same opportunity the apostles have lies before us. And if we withdraw, our confidence will waver and our commitment will become lax. But if we keep standing for the Lord and living by our convictions, the Lord is going to use us in ways we can't imagine. Look at what Peter and John do here in chapter 4. Let's start reading in verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, again, there's a continuation of thought at the end of Peter's sermon in chapter 3, because this wasn't written in chapters, this was written as one document. So Luke says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were search, uh, excuse me, teaching the people and pra- proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. 
when they began, when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Stop there for a moment. It's interesting to notice the groups of people that arrive as soon as Peter begins to preach again, and that they start to hassle Peter and John because they're speaking to the crowd. Now, obviously, they had heard them talk about the name of Jesus. Obviously, they had heard them say, it's because of you, it's because of your rejection that Jesus died. You guys disowned him. You, you put him on the cross. And that only further ticked off these three different factions because it was cutting right to who they are. But it's interesting to notice who they are. Let's look at it for a second. First, there were the priests. The priests were the spiritual religious leaders of the nation, the quote-unquote pastors of Judaism. They were the ones who, who were leading the nation or misleading, in this case, the nation spiritually. Now, you would think that they would be thrilled that revival is taking place. What pastor doesn't love revival, right? You would think they would be overjoyed that people were being stirred spiritually and that they were seeing evidence of God's hand and that they were talking about the Messiah. And you would think that because of those three things, that they would have been the ones who were leading the way and saying, we need to trust the Son of God. We need to proclaim that the Savior has come. The prophecy has been fulfilled. Everything is wonderful. But the priests were emblematic of the way the nation had been for the past 3,000 plus years. Stubborn and hard-hearted and resistant and opposed to God. And no one, not even Jesus, was going to come and convince them that they were wrong. You ever met somebody like that? Somebody who's so convinced that, that they are right? Somebody who's so clearly self-centered and, and usually wrong, but they refuse to be self-aware and refuse to admit their failure? This is the priest. What made them so much worse is that they had lied to the people and created their own version of the law and misled the people who were not astute and not like this congregation studying the word and calling on the Lord. The people were, were blinded still after 400 years of silence. And in that time, the priests had taken the law and they had twisted it because a lot of people couldn't read and they had adapted it and made it their own so that it would be self-serving. They had lied and misled the people spiritually. And it's evidenced by the fact that instead of praising Jesus and instead of protecting them and instead of seeing the prophecy being fulfilled, they had crucified him. And now they have violently opposed anybody that even speaks his name. So it's not a coincidence. The Holy Spirit never has coincidences. He writes scripture, right? Right? Nothing's out of order. Nothing's accidental. Nothing's coincidence. When the Holy Spirit writes scripture, he writes it in a certain way. It is not a coincidence that the priests are listed first because it shows just how deeply rooted sin and self was in the nation. Then look at it second. There was the captain of the temple guard. Temple guard wasn't just any security force. They were the one who guarded the place of God's presence. They guarded the temple, God's house. And interestingly, the temple guard was a group of select Levites who were selected to police the temple area. They had three different jobs. There were doorkeepers, there were guards, and there were patrols. They opened up the temple in the morning. They 
guarded and protected and watched the temple area all throughout the day, and then at night they closed it up. But our understanding uh, it needs to be about their heritage and not about their job, even though their job was important, because the Levites were the priestly tribe. They were the only ones who were allowed to minister in the temple. They were the only ones who could present the sacrifices. They were the only ones in the Old Testament, you remember, who could carry the Ark of the Covenant. And they were the only ones where a high priest could come from. So again, these were people who should have been especially attuned to the ways of God, who certainly should have understood that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah that had been promised by the prophets. But instead of that, look at the text, they want to come and arrest the apostles simply for speaking his name. So you've got the priest, you've got the temple guard, now you've got, third, the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were the most politically and religiously and socially connected sect in Jerusalem at that time. They were kind of the power brokers. problem with the Sadducees was that they didn't believe in life after death. So they rejected the notion that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, and therefore they rejected Jesus. So it made the most sense of the three groups that they would be the ones that opposed the apostles. But honestly, at this point, Peter and John aren't, aren't really uh, doing anything that would pose an inherent threat to them. So we're not sure why the Sadducees were upset, other than they're preaching the resurrection and they didn't really like that. But, but mostly, I would think, they would have just dismissed the apostles as kooks. Now you have these three groups, the priests, the temple guards, and the Sadducees, and they're all ticked off. They're all disturbed. They're all unhappy. They're, they're angry. They're hostile. They're ready to take action. And they arrest the apostles. When I, one of my kids asked me last night, Dad, what are you preaching about tomorrow? I said, well, I'm preaching about Acts 4 when the apostles get arrested. They said, well, why did they arrest them? They didn't do anything wrong. I said, see, you see it here 2,000 years later, but they didn't see it. The charges against them are unlisted. They're baseless. There's absolutely no reason for these guys to get arrested and thrown into jail overnight. Other than the fact, look back at the text because the words are very important in verse 2, that they were greatly disturbed. The word in the Greek means offended and worked up. Riled up, stirred up, angry, kind of the, the whole lynch mob mentality, just, just really aggravated. Why? Because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And for that, they get cuffed and thrown into jail overnight. Now, let's think about human nature for a minute, and let's think about what Peter and John had experienced throughout the last three years. What they had seen. They had seen their Savior. They had seen the Son of God taken and arrested and crucified. So as they're sitting in jail, there had to be kind of an innate sense of fear. Jesus is not around to protect them. Jesus is not around to support them. The guys they're dealing with are incredibly powerful and incredibly influential. And as they get arrested, it's late in the day, so they can't have a trial right then. So they have all night to think about it. You know what it's like when you lay awake all night thinking about something dreadful the next day? 
like a doctor's appointment you don't want to have or surgery or a bad meeting at work or some kind of thing that you know is going to be incredibly unpleasant. Do we lay down at 9.30, sleep just soundly, wonderfully? No, we lay awake and we stir and we wonder and we pray and we wonder and we fear and we have anxiety. Imagine what they're feeling. The first apostles to be grabbed. The first ones now to be called to the carpet while the other ten, we don't know where they are, but Peter and John are now in jail and we have to wonder about the conversation that they have that night and the prayer that they offer and that churning in their stomach that they're feeling of what's going to happen now. Before we get to what happens, ask yourself though back in the text, how do you think the crowd reacted? What do you think the crowd did at this point? The beggar was still jumping around and praising God. And all the people had come around and they had verified it and marveled at it. And then Peter begins to speak to the crowd. And the crowd's hanging on every single word. All the people had come to hear him. And Peter doesn't give a soft, easy message. He says that you have disowned Christ and you have dishonored Christ and you need to repent and return. And when you do, there will be a time of refreshing. And the people we would think would react against that. But what we're seeing now is this is not a time of apathy. Like when Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he heals and, and preaches and the people don't want to have anything to do with him. Or, or other times when the gospel goes out and people just don't want to believe. Or, or like had happened a few months before when the crowd dispersed after Palm Sunday. After they had shouted what we sang, Hosanna in the highest. And they praised him as king. Now they yelled, crucify. This was not that type of crowd. 3,000 people had trusted Christ in Acts 2. The church we see in Acts 2.47 added people daily. People were getting saved. And now we see back in chapter 4, verse 4, look at it, that many who heard believed and 5,000 more men were saved. That's how they listed things in New Testament times. That excludes right now any women and children that got saved. So we can pretty carefully assume that the number was probably double. So 3,000 at Pentecost, more every day. Now 5 to 10 maybe thousand people get saved in one moment. This is not any longer some small faction of fanatics like the 120 who were in the upper room. They could have been dismissed as some crazy, weird group of people that believe something that nobody else believes and, and they've temporarily gotten behind a cause like we're seeing in our country right now. Th this is not that. Now the gospel's taken hold of people's hearts and the Spirit of God is being poured out just as Joel had prophesied and now the church is growing. And remember, these are authentic, public commitments. These are baptisms that everybody's seeing at a time when culture was hostile. So this movement now has gone to, let's just say for the sake of numbers, 13,000 people. That's a lot. Stirred up, fired up, in love with the Lord, talking about the Lord, sharing with other people. Imagine if Racine had 13,000 people that were like that. This city would be so different. Gangs, drugs, rape, murder, theft. Imagine if 13,000 Christians in this city started talking about Jesus Christ that way. 
I mean, just, just 130. This was a movement that could not be stopped, and they knew it. And I want you to remember this morning, no matter how much man opposes the gospel, the Lord will always prevail. No matter how vehemently the enemy tempts people and twists the word and fights the battle to dissuade people from knowing Jesus Christ, there is no question that in the end, the devil will lose in a spectacular way. He can read and he knows it. So he's fighting it. And I want you to notice how he works. Look back at verse 5 for a minute. Look at how they gather all the heavy hitters the next morning. Now, there's two reasons behind this. First of all, they're trying to intimidate the apostles. And second, and I want you to hear this, there is a complete fear among this group of people that they are losing ground in their influence and their public standing. And that's a truth you and I need to remember this morning and this week, even though we don't feel like it's true. The enemies of the gospel fear the gospel far more than we imagine. Hear that now. That's an important truth for you this week. The enemies of the gospel fear the gospel far more than we would imagine. They are scared that people will understand in their hearts and their minds that Jesus Christ is the only way, only truth, and only life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him which is why they are so determined to corrupt people's minds and to redefine and weaken any measure of biblical morality in this nation. Listen, if the gospel wasn't right and Christianity was just a religion for people with weak minds who needed a crutch, and we've had that said about us, and if Jesus Christ either wasn't real or he was so out of his mind that it's not even worth discussing, then there would be no reason for culture to try to discredit Christ or us. I don't know about you, but I don't have any time this week to try to prove something wrong that is so obviously, patently false. Imagine if I said to you this morning, elephants can fly. They can. It's true. Like Dumbo, they flap their ears. Did you know that? Everybody say amen, elephants can fly. No, of course not. That's stupid, right? And if I said to you, elephants can fly, you would not spend the next week testing that theory by pushing elephants off a cliff to see if they would soar on the wind. First of all, you'd have a hard time finding some elephants. And second of all, do you have 20 hours this week to round up some African elephants and transport them to the top of the cliff and somehow push them off to see if they'll fly? What's going to happen? It's going to be like a Wile E. Coyote Roadrunner cartoon, right? Going to get out there, give a little look, and go. There is no way an elephant's going to fly. The concept of it is so physically impossible and so completely logically improbable that we don't even need to think about it that it might be true. Now, take it back to Acts 4 and to our culture today. If Jesus Christ is so ridiculous, and the concept of his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection is so ludicrous, then why does culture and why does the enemy spend so much time trying to deny it? 
Why is there such opposition to the Word of God? If we're crazy, then the devil's happy. If we're off base about God, then the devil will be thrilled. And if the apostles here are so delusional and so naturally ineffective at appealing to people because of their lack of education and their constant timidity up to this point, then why do a whole group, ask yourself this, why do a whole group of high priests and priests and rulers and elders and Levites and scribes show up for a simple legal hearing? I mean, that's a bit of overkill, right? How many think there are too many people present at this trial? Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, the scribes, the priests, the Levites, everybody's there. Why? Well, they knew that their power to corrupt and their power to lie was slipping away. Now, the Spirit of God includes every detail to teach us. So I want you to notice how he describes, got to get water, how he describes in verse 7, look back at it, the posture that they take toward Peter and John. What does it say in the text? It says that they place them where? Tell me. In the center. So get this picture in your mind. You've got all these high priests and former high priests and Levites and scribes and elders and all the other people, and they take the posture and the position of surrounding them. They put Peter and John right in the center, don't give them a place to sit, and they sit up on their high benches, and they look down at them with critical eyes, with their flowing robes, and all the things that said were the authorities of the nation, and the high priestess sitting there at us with great, great... And Peter and John are in the center, and they look at them, trying to intimidate them, trying to bully them to back down. Now, that's intentional, and I bet you Peter and John didn't even notice it. They certainly weren't threatened by it. And then they ask a very strange question. They say, by what power and in what name did did you heal that guy? They know full well by what power and in what name they did it. But they can't condemn them. They can't charge them with healing somebody because that wouldn't be a crime. So the best they can do is to try to get them to implicate themselves by declaring their loyalty to Christ, which, notice, is exactly what Peter and John do. But in them doing that, the priests don't get the advantage they thought they would. I'm going to use this word carefully. Peter kind of mocks them. Oh, okay, we're here because we healed somebody. Hmm. Uh, this, This man is walking around and leaping and praising God. You all know him. He sat at the temple gate every day. He's now healed. That happened. Um, so, so we're here for dot, dot, dot. And then Peter does exactly what they wanted him to do. There is no mistaking who he believes and how it was done. Look at what he says in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, don't glide over that. That's a very important five-word phrase. 
Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, little dig there, whom God raised from the dead, by the way, God's stronger than you, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. Jesus is the stone who was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And then just to make sure that they understand his theology and his personal conviction and his message for the rest of his life, all rolled up into one verse, he says this in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Somebody say amen. Imagine if this, if we were this clear and this concise with our beliefs and our message every time we were asked. Instead of hiding it or nuancing it or, or working around it. Imagine if the church of Jesus Christ this morning was still that bold and that unsidetracked. Because the Bible says that if our gospel is hidden, it is hidden to those who are lost. The very people who need to hear the truth that God loves them and Christ died for them and rose again so their sins can be forever, forgiven forever will remain blinded if we don't stand for the Lord. Now Peter here doesn't equivocate one bit because he at this point has reached a different level of his life. He has no desire at this point to, to be popular or to please people or to be relevant or to tell people what they want to hear or to just softly appease people so they don't have to change. At the same time, he has no desire to be judgmental or to draw attention to himself or to act like he's superior based on what he believes and who he is. His only interest at this point and from now on is to make sure that anyone who hears him knows that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of mankind. That's all he cares about. He wants people to know that anyone who believes in Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. And that eliminates the historically Jewish approach that you follow the law and you save yourself and it eliminates the, the religious uh, approach of the last 2,000 years that we do the right things and pray the right prayers and go to the right services and that will save us and it eliminates the postmodern cultural theory that we just kind of do our own thing and we kind of make up our own religion and that will get us to heaven. It eliminates all of us. His verse, verse 12, says that salvation comes from no one other than Christ. Now pause there. Because I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible has a break there, right? A new heading? We need to reset, again, the climate of the text. Get it in your mind now. Peter and John are standing there, and they're surrounded by this group of priests, the ones who had condemned Jesus, the one who had put him to death. There's no guarantee of release. They have every 
expectation and possibility that they will be punished. But there is no question between verses 12 and 13 that there's something palpable about Peter and John that is such that it was actually physically and spiritually obvious to the people that were standing against them. It was not just the weight of their words which were strong enough on their own. I want you to see that between verse 12 and verse 13 and into verse 13, there was an added component to them that gave their words increased power and brought about conviction in the hearts of those who heard it. Now what struck me as very interesting as I studied this text is the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here other than where it says that Peter was full of the Holy Spirit. But when you get down to verse 13, the Holy Spirit doesn't talk about himself. And I believe that's because that he wants to teach us a very important spiritual principle about the most distinctive characteristic of a disciple of Jesus Christ. The principle this morning is there is a very distinctive characteristic that should mark a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's in verse 13. As they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized them as having been with Jesus. They looked at these men and they said, now none of this makes sense. These guys should be backing down. They should be intimidated. They should be scared of us. What is going on? They've had no training. They've had no schooling. They're simple fishermen from Galilee. We are the high priests and the rulers of this nation. Why aren't they backing down? And all of a sudden, the same conclusion comes to every one of their minds. Guess who directed that? And they all become amazed. Think about the epiphany that they saw Peter and John on their faces as they're sitting there looking down and scowling, pointing their fingers. And then all of a sudden they back up. Oh my word. These guys have been with Jesus. Now that has nothing to do with the fact that they had walked with Jesus for three years as his disciples because everybody in the country knew who these guys were. Jesus had been all over the landscape preaching and healing and teaching. And the high priests and the religious leaders we know had had many confrontations with Christ, especially about what the disciples were doing. So it wasn't like this was the first time that they realized that Peter and John had been around Jesus. What we need to understand this morning, very important, is that the Spirit is teaching us something much deeper. And that is that our identity in Christ should be so unmistakable to people who meet us that they see Christ present in us and they see us residing in His presence. Two things. That Christ is in us and that we abide in Christ. People should be able to see that evidence in our faith 
They should see the fact of Christ's ownership and lordship over our lives. They should see the proof of our yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. They should see the absolute validity of a changed character. And they should see the faithfulness of our commitment to his calling. These things should be obvious and observable. And there should be no mistaking when somebody looks at our lives and hears us speak and watches how we act and listens to us talk to our kids and watches us at work. There should be no mistaking that we belong to Christ and that we love Christ. None. That's the only way somebody can look at us and go, wow, wow. That person has been with Jesus. Peter and John had been with Jesus for three years, but they hadn't really been with him until they understood the new calling in their life. And this was so powerful because all the leaders had tried to eliminate Christ and suppress anyone from talking about him in the hope that it would just go away. And now these apostles are standing before them and they are trying so hard to intimidate them and quell the rebellion right now. But as they watch these men, they are so amazed at how strong and confident and obviously full of the Lord that they are, that these leaders are completely incapacitated. Untrained, uneducated, nothing going for them, unlike the group that's surrounding them that has all the power, and yet they have no power because the power comes in the presence of the Lord. And if that wasn't enough, this caught me, that... The beggar is still there standing with them. Look at that. That's in the text. Look back at it. Verse 14. Seeing the men who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. I I don't know what happened here. The Spirit doesn't tell us. But I wonder, either the beggar went to jail with them, or he showed up as as soon as he heard about the trial and said, I'm going to stand with you guys. Can you imagine the boldness? The day before... He's laying there, begging for money, can't walk, has nothing going for him. Pitiful, awful. Now, he says, I'm going in there with you guys. I'm standing with you in front of these high priests, these priests, these Levites, these scribes, and everybody else. I'm with you. Come on, let's go. Somehow, he breaks through security. Somehow, he gets there. And as Peter and John are on this mock trial, he comes and he stands. And what a powerful evidence of God's work, living proof. And don't you love verse 14? It says they have nothing to say. Dozens and dozens of people. And there is complete silence. They're amazed at the confidence and spiritual power of Peter and John. And they back down. And it has nothing to do with their words or their ability or their increasing influence. Notice in the text, verse 13, it was all because of the presence of the Lord in their lives. Listen, we talked last week about how people will be drawn to the Lord when his presence is obvious in our life. But we need to understand the other side of it that power also has the ability to fuse opposition to his name. 
It can bring spiritual refreshing to our lives that brings the fullness of joy, but it can also lead to the spiritual revival of people that don't know about him who are falling away from him. So let's bring it to a close. How do we know? How, how can we tell when we're really living in his presence? I'm not talking about, oh, I, I prayed and he's my savior or, or that I'm practicing the spiritual disciplines or, or I'm doing all the things that a Christian's supposed to do. Those are wonderful and important and we need to keep doing those. But I want to tell you, Acts 4.13, I love this verse. Acts 4.13 is a different level. This is not just I'm a saved and I do my best and, and God loves me and I'm going to heaven and I do all the things Christians are supposed to do. Yes, keep doing this. But I'm telling you this morning, this is a different level of closeness to the Lord. This is a different level of yieldness and faith. And it comes from a constant occupation in us by His Spirit. And it comes from a constant preoccupation in our lives with being in His presence. And what's ironic is that when we say, when we're living that way, when we actually are with Jesus, we probably won't even know it. Because we will be so yielded to Him and so not full of self and our minds will be so marked by humility and will want to give all glory to the Lord that when somebody comments about it, we'll say, come on, you don't know, you don't know. Look at Acts 4. It says that they had been with Jesus. And I want to give you just very, very quickly, we're almost done, four certain distinct characteristics of what it means to be with Jesus. First of all, when we have been with Jesus, we will be confident in our trust. We will be confident in our trust as opposed to fear, worry, and timidity. Don't turn, but do you remember the passage in Matthew where the disciples are on the boat and a great storm comes up and they're fearful and they're working against the wind and they're crying out, Jesus, sleep. And finally they arouse him and they say, Master, wake up, we're all about to die. And that wasn't just, um, Master, can you help us, please? Anybody think it was like that? Master, come on! Come on, we're, we're about to die. Get up here, do something. You know what Jesus does? Does Jesus get all worked up and stressed like we would? What's he do? Stop. And what does Jesus say to them? Why do you have so little faith? I'm right here with you. My presence is right here with you. Why don't you trust? You see, fear and worry will debilitate us spiritually and personally, emotionally, relationally, which is why 900 times in the Bible, God says, do not So are we going to disobey him or are we going to find confidence in him? 
See, that was the difference between Paul and Timothy. If you read First and Second Timothy, Paul says in Second Timothy 1, Timothy, stop being fearful. Stop being timid. Remember God's presence and his constant faithfulness. And see, Timothy apparently couldn't get past people's criticism and opposition. And you know what? That's part of ministry. But it was to the point where he wanted to run away and quit. And Paul says, one thing you need to understand, I want you to hear how I'm saying this, is you need to quit fearing people. And you need to quit fearing opposition because it is part of ministry. What you need to do is remember the presence of God and the calling that you have and the salvation that is unmistakable and you need to get to work. When you are walking with Jesus, you are confident in your trust. I'm not saying that we have to be perfect because we know that trials cause us pain and they cause us stress and that's the time where we're refined and made complete. But I'm telling you, when you have walked with Jesus, you are confident that he is able. Second, when we've been with Jesus, we will be fearless in our witness as opposed to being intimidated by people. Peter and John don't care what kind of positioning these guys take. They don't care what kind of words they say. They do not care what these ungodly men think because their minds aren't shaped by the Lord. They have more important things to do than think about themselves at this point. So much of what the enemy wants to do is fill us with an unhealthy awareness of our own inadequacy and remind us how much we need to be liked. So we will be hesitant to engage or to do something, anything that would ruffle somebody's feathers like speaking the truth to them. Because we so desperately want, want to be liked. And then we live in such a hypersensitive culture that that's an effective strategy. But the disciple who's been walking with Jesus, listen now, is not hindered by other people's opinion. Why? Because the need for the gospel is too urgent. There's a great song that Brooklyn Tabernacle sings, and we'll sing it hopefully someday as a choir. We need 10, 15 more of you to join us in the choir, okay? That's my appeal for the day. And it says, I'm not going to take my time to worry about what he said and she said and they said. I don't have time for that because I need to walk with the Lord. Listen, let's be careful as a church as we come up on one year. And I see it happening in little subtle ways. And I'm on guard against it. I'm praying about it that we don't start to snipe at each other. Start to talk about each other behind our backs. Oh, well, so-and-so said this and so-and-so did this. Listen, you remember what I said two weeks ago? you got a problem with somebody, you go to them. Don't talk to somebody else. And if you can't do that, you come to me and we'll go together. And if you're wrong, I'm going to make you apologize. And if they're wrong, I'm going to make them apologize. But we are not going to have this little... Because you know what? That kills a church. We don't have time to mess around with that. The world is lost. They need the gospel, and it's urgent because the days are short. We need to be fearless in our witness. Third, when we've walked with Jesus, when we're being with him, we will be faithful 
to our calling and our ministry as opposed to being inconsistent and disloyal and controlled by our circumstances. Perfect example of this was just a few months before in Gethsemane. Disciples couldn't stay awake. Jesus said, watch and pray. He's in obvious agony. And they're sleeping. They're so worn out. And he comes back and he says, wake up. Come on. This is, this is all of humanity right here in this moment. Wake up, watch, and pray. And then when Judas and the guards come, they both overreact and underreact at the same time. And then when Jesus is led away, they all hide except for Peter who follows him and denies him publicly. And then when they come back and say, he's alive, the tomb's empty, they all doubt it. But Now, look at it. Oh, no, the circumstances are far more intimidating and far more dangerous. But they remain faithful to Jesus and the gospel. And notice not only do they not back down, but they take an offensive tack to declare his name. How well we remain faithful despite anything. How well we walk by faith, not by sight or by self, will reveal how faithfully we are being with Jesus. If your faith is strong in trial, and you're still praising Him and honoring Him when things are good, if your witness is strong, then you are walking with Jesus. But if there's weakness there and despair and discouragement and no hope, then then we're hard-pressed to say that we're living verse 13. And then fourth and finally, when we've been with Jesus, we will be defensive of Him as opposed to denying Him. Denial can be very, very subtle, or it can be right out in the open. But it happens through our words, and through our actions, and through our weakened convictions. And every time it happens, we chip away at the credibility of our character and our witness. The apostles had been with Jesus, and because they loved him and abided in his presence, when somebody was critical and somebody opposed him, they stood up and defended him. And listen, that may irritate people, and they may say, you're too harsh, and your Bible's too restrictive, but I would rather take the risk of giving them the truth that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life, and them being offended, than by letting them be confused by all the other options and having one foot in the fire. I'd rather have no friends. Please be my friend, okay? I'd rather have no friends and be standing for the gospel than have a million friends and back down. And that's what it's going to take because God's forgiveness is sufficient and it changes lives forever. And we need to stand for that. Let's close our eyes for just a moment. Let me ask you, just in the next 30 seconds. Do those four characteristics describe you this morning? They give a very strong indication whether we're really being with Jesus on a daily basis or whether we're still caught up in all the traps that self lays for us.
Maybe this morning you say, well, I'm good on a couple of those, but a couple of them, I don't know, Paul, I'm just not, I don't know, it's just not quite there. I want to encourage you just in the next minute to admit that to the Lord and ask Him to compel you to draw you close to Him so this will be true of you. Father, You are an amazing, amazing God. That's such an understatement today. Your love and Your mercy and Your grace and Your forgiveness is beyond our understanding. And yet it is real because Christ died for our sins and rose again. And as people who know that to be true and have received your salvation into our lives and are now called your children. Lord, this morning, we ask you to stir us that we would draw closer to you and that you would draw closer to us. That it would be unmistakable in our lives that you are present, that your spirit is filling us to overflowing that there would be no question, no equivocation, no doubt that we love you and serve you. And Lord, as that happens, that we would desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life, that we would want to be so near to you, not distracted by all the garbage that the world has to offer, not full of self which only makes us unhappy and critical. Not preoccupied with anything other than you. Lord, we see a remarkable change in the disciples over those few months from being self-centered to being completely God-centered. And Lord, I pray this morning you would do that in my heart. I pray you do that in the hearts of those in this room that love you. There would be a new fire, a new energy, a new passion for you that would be unmistakable. Lord, where there is junk in our lives this morning, where there's sin that's hidden that maybe we don't even recognize, that you would cleanse that out of our hearts. Make us pure, Father. Not just good, but pure. That we would be holy, sanctified, set apart to you. And Lord, as that happens, and as we reside in your presence and you and us, that we would give you praise and glory and adoration and honor and that our words of witness and sharing the gospel would be bold and confident and strong because, Lord, this world is dying quickly. And you have given us this great calling to go and teach the gospel so that men and women and children would be saved. Equip us this week, Father, we pray for this work. With all that we have in front of us and all the opposition we'll face, equip us to do that work for your glory. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you're already doing that work in our lives. And we love you so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.